Good afternoon. This is a podcast runs through it. I'm Nelson King here with Dixie Hart. Hi, Dixie. Hello. She always pipes up, but you know. Anyway, Dixie's here with me. We're going to be continuing our series of interviews with candidates for state office. In this case, we're talking to a candidate. His name is Rafe Grable. His actual name is Raphael, but Rafe Grable. Uh, he's running for the Attorney General of the state of Montana. And it's a very important position. We, we try to stress in these interviews that these statewide offices are much more important than a lot of people think. Uh, now, the state attorney general is into a lot of very important issues, uh, but we want to stress that this is another position that's on the land board, and that has a lot to do with how our public lands are administered in the state of Montana, and that the attorney general is involved in issues which are sometimes in the pocketbook, but often very conceptual. Uh, I think yeah, Dixie and I are going to be asking him about a, a particular case. Now, I remember just a few, not, not very long ago, maybe a month ago, I heard that there was this case at the Supreme Court that was based on a, on something that happened in Montana, and it's called the Espinosa versus Montana Department of Revenue case. Uh, now, I don't know if you have heard about this, but this is a case that happened here in Montana. It involves our state constitution and was argued at the Supreme Court recently, and it has to do with public education and the funding for public education. Very important issue, and that will be one of the items we're going to discuss with Rafe. Um, I think this is going to be an interesting interview. He's, he's involved in a lot of things. So without further ado... So, good afternoon. Glad you're here. I'm going to be talking to Rafe Graybill. It's Rafe, right? I mean, yes. Yeah. I, I'm sure people look at that and say, how do I pronounce that? And it's, it's Get a lot of checks to Ralph on the campaign, but the uh -huh. bank still takes them. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, Rafe is the, so it's the same name, Raphael, Raphael, that you see around. Rafe is the England English pronunciation, and it's, uh, it, it's for, it means God heals, and it's after the angel of mm. healing. Uh, okay. For... Before I was born, my father was diagnosed with a brain tumor and uh, was not expected to survive, but he, he did survive. And so when I was born, my name, Raphael, was, was meant to celebrate his, his survival through cancer. Hmm. Wow. That's a good, yeah, good backstory, definitely. Um, Rafe is a, currently your counsel to the governor? Is that, yes. That's I, something like that official title. Yes. And you're running for the attorney general of the state of Montana, which is a... a post I think that most people have heard of. I'm not sure everybody understands that, but we'll get around to that. I think that's a good question to work on. Absolutely. Uh, but uh, we'll start out with, you know, I think people are curious of your background a bit and what got you into politics. I know your background's very, had a lot of legal things in your background, but what, what got you into politics? Um, so we can start there. Uh, I know you're from Great Falls, right? I am, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was born and raised in Great Falls. Um, I'm a fifth-generation Montanan. My family actually originally came to the East Helena area in the 1800s and ran a pharmacy out there, which, you know, I, I have a picture of the old pharmacy, and in the 1800s, you have to imagine most pharmacies are like booze and opium, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, pharmacy business didn't stick, and they moved around to, to Wilsal for a bit and eventually headed up to, up to Belt in central Montana. 
And uh, our family took a big bet that Belt was going to be the main town around the Great Falls area. <laughs> Obviously, that became Great Falls, and so they moved to Great Falls and have been there since since the 20s. And uh, grew up there, uh, went to public schools there. Went to a down- I grew up in downtown Great Falls. Um, got a great education. Got basically all of my values from growing up in that neighborhood in downtown Great Falls. And um, it's a huge privilege and honor to be able to work now in the governor's office and uh, advise the governor and, and various cabinet agencies on policies that affect our entire state. And when I do that, I never forget where I came from, which is um, you know, small 200-person school, not much different than the one we're in right now um, in downtown Great Falls. Yeah, and I think then, well, your college experience is interesting. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to use a word that sometimes gets kicked around a bit, Rhodes Scholar. That is a, <laughs> yes. And, uh, well, I'm not going to dig into that, but I think people ought to know that you have a very strong academic background, also very strong training in legal matters. Yale Law is you know, pretty well known for legal training. Um, and I think I get an impression that that sort of kick-started you in the direction of politics, but maybe you can explain that. Well, I, I was really lucky that I got a great education in Great Falls, and that empowered me to be able to go to some of the world's great universities. I went to New York City as an undergrad. You know, Growing up in Great Falls, I thought, what could be more different than Great Falls? Well, New York City was, and got to live there for four years and learn all about that life. And then You were at Columbia, right? I was at Columbia, yeah. And you also did some police work at the time. I did, I did. Um, yeah, I was... I was a member of the New York City Police Department as an auxiliary police officer, and um, I got—I remember—I I got involved with that my first year. Um, it was in—I remember very distinctively. It was in the fall of my freshman year, and I had just come out of high school, and I, I was really involved in journalism and debate and and you know sort of those kinds of activities in high school. And I—I I thought, you know, I'm in college now. I should do something different. Well, I walked down 116th Street uh, into the subway station one day, and there was a police officer down in the subway. And he was at a little table, kind of like this table in front of us now, a little card table. And he said, I'm recruiting for the auxiliary police department. Take this flyer, come up to the precinct, and um, see what you think. And uh, I thought, oh, okay, I took the flyer. And I thought, you know, I am committed to doing something different now that I'm living in New York for this period. And I always wanted to come back to Montana. So, you know, what would be more unique than this? And so I, I went to the informational meeting. And uh, it was about 20 blocks north of Columbia. I'll tell you, there were no other Columbia students there. It was a very different uh, group of people than I spent most of my day with at Columbia. And I decided to do it. And it was an eight-week training course in everything from basic criminal law to self-defense um, to police tactics. And uh, it, it formed a really meaningful part of my experience living in New York City. Um, it meant that one night a week I went out and patrolled a precinct with other officers in New York City. And, you know, we would do parades, things like that as well. But but most of the job really was being a visible police presence to help make the community feel safer. Um, and what was, you know, even though it was 20 blocks north, you know, I think Columbia people didn't always view it as their community. And it was a way for me to get involved in the place I lived. And that, that meant a lot to me. Um, you know, putting on a blue uniform, you know, you're, I, I wasn't a sworn peace officer, but people look at you differently. And that was a real learning experience for me as well. Um, and I, I think that that really drove an interest of mine in going into law school and, and working in law, and particularly in criminal law, um, because you know I saw sort of firsthand how a lot of those encounters start. Um, and I, it, it really it really matured me a lot that experience. Well, not only Democrats, but people these days talk a lot about empathy, mm-hmm. having the ability to feel and understand what other people think and feel. And I suspect that this kind of experience helps you with that. Um, but 
it's not your only qualification, but <laughs> you know, I, I wanted people to know about that because it's it's different. I appreciate you asking. It's not something I usually bring up or talk about a bunch in the campaign trail, but it, it is a real important formative experience in my life, and and um, it, it was a it was a different way to volunteer, and it was a really unique um, experience for me those four years working with the police department that I'll, I'll never forget the experiences I had there. So after you went through the, the college procedure, got your uh, JD at, at Yale, I believe, right, and and then what happened after that, or how did you get into the legal issues that you've been involved with well, a lot of them but uh... well i i've been involved in in politics and campaigns in montana for a long time and one of the things i think makes our state so special is that we don't we don't have a machine politics here it, it really is a pretty open system where people who um, want to see their values reflected in government and reflected in public life have an opportunity to get involved. And so I'd helped out with state legislature races in my hometown. I'd worked on the Obama campaign in 2008, again in 2012. And actually in 2008, I got to know a guy named Steve Bullock pretty well. I was actually working against him at the time. I was working for the, his primary opponent, a guy from Great Falls. And we got to know each other pretty well. And um, you know, he, he had done a similar... Was he attorney general at that time? He or? was running for attorney general. Okay. And he, he had had a similar path growing up in Montana, um, going to Columbia, uh, practicing law and then and coming back and, and serving the state as an attorney and then he was at this point running and we stayed in touch and had similar interests and I, I decided to help out with his 2012 campaign for governor because I really believed that he he represented the kind of leadership I wanted to see in government and so I helped his campaign out quite a bit in, in 2012 and did a whole range of things uh, the most fun of which was driving around the state in this 1989 Winnebago the campaign had purchased called the Eagle <laughs> and uh, we drive all around the state in that and um, and so, I, and I remained involved when I just, when I went to law school, and uh, though I wasn't a full-time staff member there by any measure, um, this was around 2013 when we had seen this really, really bad effect of dark money in Montana elections. You know, if you think back to 2012, that election, remember, you, you may or may not remember, there was this big court case about whether um, basically dark money groups could give unlimited money to candidates directly. And this was an issue with the Republican candidate for governor, Rick Hill. There was a lawsuit, and he there was a one-week period where, where one court had said this was okay to do before the appeals court said it wasn't okay. Well, in that one-week period, Rick Hill got a $500,000 donation. Right? Right. And, and Bullock ultimately was successful in that election, but it, it really opened a lot of people's eyes to the fact that there is a lot of money out there, and it's, it's focused on Montana for a variety of reasons. So fast forward to 2013, there was a lot of focus in the legislature on what do we do to it, you know, if we can't stop corporate money because of Citizens United, are there other things we can do? Can we at least make sure that people have to disclose where it's coming from so we can have a fair assessment of what, you know, what that money is looking to do? And um, so I helped Governor Bullock when he and his staff started developing what was later became the Disclose Act, which is this pioneering law that Montana has that many other states have since copied that said, that sort of looks past the technicalities of what you call yourself, what your tax status is as a dark money group, and just says, look, if you're going to spend money in our elections within a certain period of time, you have to disclose who your donors are. And it was it was a tremendously innovative approach. It didn't, you know, the, the Trace Act, I think it was called in 2013. It eventually got passed in 2015. Um, but, you know, I was a first-year law student at Yale Law School at that point and, you know, not doing as much of my homework as I should have because I was so fired up about, you know, 
this really special state we live in where um, a kid from downtown Great Falls can be involved in helping to write laws that years later became the law of the land. And, and I'm really proud of that. I mean, it wasn't just me. It was a team effort. But I'm really proud of that law because it's something that, that other states and other cities around the country have modeled their laws after. And it's, right. it's made a big difference. And, and the, real, the proof's in the pudding. In 2016, the Koch brothers, so the way this law works is you have to disclose if you spend within 60 days of ballots going out. So basically 90 days before Election Day because we have those mail-in ballots. Koch brothers, on the 61st day, stopped spending in Montana in 2016. And that was real proof. Okay, they, they're not going to come play here if they know they have to disclose. And it tells you something about them and something about our laws. And I was really proud of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can see how, you know, you would feel like, you know, this is, this is a national level thing. I mean, it's important. And you had a big piece of it, which is, yeah, it's, it's motivational at very least. Uh, well, and, with- and, and I'd also add, too, I mean, the money in politics is, is, is troubling for more ways than we give it credit for. Um, it's troubling in that, you know, outside money comes in and tries to influence our vote. It's also troubling, I think, in what it does to the, to the ways that politicians behave. Um, I remember very well a, a talk I went to with a, a U.S. senator who spoke to some class. I think he was a senator from Connecticut. And he said, you know, I spend almost all of my day on the phone raising money from rich people. And he said, and he was kind of wistful. He said, you know, what, how, would, how would our government be different if people like me didn't do that all day, if we could focus on governance and on policy and on issues? And the more I've gotten into politics, I've seen – you know how much of an effect this is. I we see in our own in our own campaign. You know, if you say stuff that's more you know that's more partisan on one edge or the other, uh, people get fired up and they donate money. That right. creates incentives <laughs> for politicians just to focus on the edges and not focus on right. this sort of core idea our government mm-hmm. is built around, which is that we will all have differences in values and we've got to figure out something to move forward if we're going to govern. And um, I. I you know, at, at a broader philosophical level, I really worry about our capacity to tackle long-term problems, problems like climate change, problems like um, economic inequality in our country, if we can't you know, get our hands around the basic model of government that our system is predicated on. Let me do a little bit of our promotion. We just, just posted an episode about money and politics. And what, what do we call it, Dixie? Money changes everything. Yeah. And, True. And, we're, and that's <laughs> True all about, it's yeah. all about campaign finance reform, which used to be real common. I mean, a decade ago, that was everyone had their position. Mm-hmm. That was a major issue. But since Citizens United, it seems like everybody's just sort of shrugged their shoulders and said, well. But, you know, it's like you said, there's lots of different ways that that problem manifests. Mm-hmm. Well, and I read in the news uh, just a couple weeks ago, the Koch brothers announced they're going to spend more money in 2020 yeah. than ever before. You know, sometimes I, I talk about the, this issue is very near and dear to my heart because I think it's I think it's sort of the the bottleneck issue that if we don't figure out, we're not going to get meaningful change on anything else. And sometimes I talk to people, they say, "Well, you know, campaign finance that's that's just another issue, and is that really the biggest priority right now?" And I say, "Well, if you if, if what you care about requires a change in government, requires policy changes, then you need to care about this issue, and it's still here. Right. And the Koch brothers did us all a favor by telling us in advance what they're going to do. And they, they announced, we are still here. We're going to still spend this right. money. So let's loop back a little bit yeah. to the state attorney general. What is the state attorney general, and how does it affect, for example, this money in politics issue. I mean, where does is there an interface between the what the attorney general works on 
and issues like money and politics. Absolutely. Um, I mean, there, there are, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what the attorney general is and does. Um, the Constitution in our state defines it in really narrow terms. It says it's the or, or vague terms, not narrow, pretty broad terms. It says the, the attorney general is the state's chief legal officer. And I think of all the offices um, on the land board, you know, Secretary of State, Office of Public Construction, Auditor, um, this is the office where there is the most discretion afforded to the office holder to make decisions. The Secretary of State is an incredibly important office, and the wrong person can screw it up. I think we're seeing that right now. Right. Um, the right person does the job well by just implementing the statutes. AG is different, and I think that the, the framers of our Constitution really saw the Attorney General as a structural counterbalance to power. And what I mean by that is the people that wrote our Constitution understood that legislatures can get corrupted. They understood that economic power without enough restraints can corrupt and can take away our choices, our freedom. You mentioned that earlier. Um, the Attorney General, it's that person's job to make sure that these rights and protections that exist on paper come to life and mean something through the legal system. And I think that's a really, really unique, special role about this job. And I think anyone running for this job who doesn't see it that way, who sees it as just another political office, like the legislature, like the governorship, where you just kind of weigh in on whatever you want and you kind of administer this agency. I mean, that's a way to be attorney general. But I think that kind of misses the point of what our framers saw this job doing in the context of government. I think it's an, it, it, it functions as an inherent check on power. And it's also a way to go out and, and make all these interesting rights we have in our special, you know, we can talk about the Montana Constitution and its sort of unique features, um, to make those rights mean something. You know, in, in 1972, we had these, these 100 citizen delegates who wrote the Constitution in Montana. Right. And they put into that Constitution innovations that um, had never been seen before in state constant. Things like the right to a clean and healthy environment, the right to privacy, the right to a quality education. And those rights are important but they just exist on paper unless someone's willing to go out and sometimes it means picking a fight in the legal system to make sure those rights mean something. And I think that is what the Attorney General does at, at its best. I recall somewhere, well, yeah, I remember, I think it was a quote on your website which said, uh, yeah, I've got it here, it says, quote, individual choice and personal freedom in the face of a modern life. And I think when you're talking about the attorney general of the state dealing with issues such as dark money, money in politics, and a lot of other privacy, um, personal issues, voter registration issues. It's a, there, there's an element here to, I, I guess I could call it populism, but I don't think that's the right word. Anyway, I would say your populism, if you have any, mm -hmm. is different than that of some, let's say, somebody like... Uh, uh, Gianforte or Trump or something <laughs> yeah, like that. Yeah. I mean, okay, we, we kick the word populism around, but how do you see that? I mean, is there a, how should I say it? Democrats want to do things for people, and in a sense they're populist in that mm -hmm. word. But your ideology is different, and you come from a, uh, a different take on that. I'll let you explain. <laughs> I, I, I think the attorney general's, the, the office itself is inherently populist in the sense that it is, a, it is a check on power. It's a check on institutional power, on government power, and on private economic power. I mean, I think one of the most important roles of state attorneys general we've seen in the last 
three years or so with the rise of the Trump administration is the role of state attorneys general in checking the federal government. Um, there are these high-profile cases right. that we all know about. There's a lot of low-profile cases as well that are just crying out for attorney general intervention. I'll give you one example. Um, the Trump administration has, has empowered some of the biggest players in every major industry to merge and get more powerful. You know, when two giant cell phone companies uh, merge together so that consumers only have three choices, and that's really only consumers in like major urban areas. Most of us have one choice or two choices. They're not merging for our benefit, right? They're merging for the benefit of their companies. Um, antitrust review, this is just one example, is a traditional role of state attorneys general. And if the federal government abdicates its duties because it's bought off or for whatever reason, then that's, that's a place where state attorneys general have a role to play. And when I think about, you know, I talk to people around the state and ask, you know, what's on your mind? It doesn't have to be a political issue per se. What's on your mind? It's things like privacy. You know, I feel like I can't uh, keep up with the 21st century and its technology without giving up my privacy. Well, that's an AG issue. Um, the price of prescriptions. You know, I, I, I go to Walgreens in, in Helena where I live and I, I get a different charge every single time I'm there. Um, that's an issue crying out for attorney general intervention. And other attorneys general in the country have used this unique office of attorney general to go out and make a difference on those issues. Uh, one of my favorite stories is the attorney general of Connecticut. Um, he, know, he took this, this drug amoxicillin, like a very basic um, antibiotic. You know, if you get an ear infection, get amoxicillin. He took it for, for rosacea. And he found that um, his copay went up. It was, like, I mean, I don't know the exact numbers. It was, you know, $5 to 10 to 50 to close to $100. He said, well, that's weird. This drug's been on the market for, as a generic, for decades. Why? There's no market forces that would drive this price up. Well, he launched uh, an investigation as attorney general, and he discovered that generic drug companies were working together to raise the prices of generic drugs in our country. And we didn't notice it because our insurance might cover part of it, or we might think, oh, it might just be some issue with my plan. But this was happening, and that's money out of our pockets. Right? And he used the, the power of his office to launch what he later discovered to be the biggest price-fixing cartel possibly in human history because there's so much money involved. Now, Montana joined that case as you know, one of the last states on board, and I think that's really commendable that we joined that case. Um, but I think this is an office where we can lead. I mean, Montana has this unique constitution, this unique history, where we can lead on those kinds of cases. We have talented people in that office, um, but it's a question of what do you do, what are your priorities? And it'd be a real shame to have an attorney general who wouldn't, you know, doesn't go out there and ask people, what's on your mind? What are you worried about? And how can this office make your life better? Yeah, it's a more activist point of view, I guess, from from some attorneys general. Um, and 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 I I don't disagree with that, but I, I I'd offer a different word. I'd say uh, enforcement focused. And the reason I say that is because there are laws that protect us now, like from price fixing. That's illegal now. But without a watchdog, without someone who's ready to go out, who understands the problem and who's willing to prioritize it and do something about it. You don't get enforcement, and those laws don't mean anything. Right. And I think the I think that people who have something to gain from no oversight, you know, off, they often call it activism. Um, I wouldn't d disagree with that label, but I, I I like to call it enforcement because those laws ought to mean something. Mm -hmm. Let me just briefly then. Uh, you're talking about working on laws that already exist, but I believe that the attorney general also has a can have a role in new legislation. Um, what's your take on that? Well, I mean, the, the 
the attorney general isn't obviously a legislator, and so they you know they don't vote on bills, they don't propose bills. Um, I do think that the attorney the attorney general does have a role in advising the legislature as the state's chief legal officer. Um, you can imagine a situation where, um, well, let's let's imagine a very realistic situation. Let's say the governorship were to change party hands in Montana to a, a Republican. And let's say that the Republicans uh, are reelected as majorities in the legislature. I don't think this will happen. Um, I think the Democrats will win the governorship. But let's say that happens. Um, you might imagine uh, a Republican legislature doing something to try to restrict a woman's right to choose in Montana. That's been a priority for a long time right. for conservatives in this state. We vetoed a lot of those bills in the governor's office. Well, a good attorney general who's an advocate and who's loyal to our Constitution would know that the Montana Constitution and its right to privacy protects a woman's right to choose, and that the Constitution trumps anything the legislature does. And a good attorney general who is an advocate would go to every single hearing and all that ruckus that happens in the hallways between those hearings where people get lobbied and would say the Constitution is clear on this point. You can't do this. Right. So I, I think there is a role in the legislative process, um, but I, I also think that role can often be a check in favor of what, what, are, what are our deepest values that we've memorialized in our Constitution, and how do we protect them? Right. Yeah, I, you seem to refer a lot to, the, this is, you're talking about the 1974 Constitution. Yes, no, 1972, Montana Constitution. Yeah. Um, did you have a relative that worked on that? or? <laughs> I do, yeah. My, yeah. Uh, my grandfather, Leo, was a, Leo Grayville Jr., was a, elected as a delegate from Great Falls and then uh, became the president of the convention. So it's personal to you as well. It's 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 personal to me, way. but it's but it's yeah. I think it's 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 a document we can all celebrate and be excited about. Absolutely, um, it was very know. visionary and way ahead of its time. And and it's it it really it makes citizenship in this state a really unique and special thing, um, and it gives Montana a unique story to tell because we've set forth our values in this modern, very affirmative statement. Um, through a recent case that I worked on, the Espinoza case, um, I've, had, I've had an opportunity to get to work with, with some of the surviving Constitutional Convention delegates and to talk to them about their stories in that, in that special time. And it's, it's, uh, it's really remarkable how lucky we are to have that document. And, and, and by the same token, when people like Congressman Gianforte or Senator Daines, who in this case wrote in and told the Supreme Court to get rid of part of our Constitution, um, makes that even more troubling. But let's just, we were going to ask that question oh, anyway. Oh, sorry. No, no, <laughs> Jumped hey, ahead. Uh, let, let, let's just frame that a little bit more. What sure. is the Espinoza case and what was going on there? I, I think you went to, to uh, Washington to hear the Supreme Court deliberations. Um, I did, and I'm, I'm actually one of the lawyers on the case representing okay. the state. Um, but let's, let's frame it a little bit. Yeah, so the... The Espinoza case comes out of a, a program the legislature passed that said uh, you can get a $150 tax credit um, if you donate money to a scholarship program, uh, which could in turn donate that money to private religious schools. And um, there's a whole long history that, that we, can, we can get into. But basically, the Montana Constitution, um, the people that wrote it felt that public education was one of the highest callings of the state. It was one of the most important things the state could do. And they built all kinds of structural protections in the Constitution for public education. One of those protections was a prohibition on diverting public money, which ought to go to the public system, into private religious schools. 
Now, there were other provisions in other states that had did this. Um, these, these are as old as, as colonial America. Um, James Madison, actually, you know, the, the person that wrote the First Amendment to the Constitution, he saw this as an important part of religious freedom. He said that we ought to have separation of church and state, no established religion, and we shouldn't have you know, public tax dollars going to private religious institutions. And that's good for the public. It's also good for religion because it prevents the state from influencing it. Well, there was a very ugly period in the mid-1800s when um, a lot of these provisions were passed in states in a way to starve Catholic parochial schools. And it took on this anti-Catholic connotation for a period of our history, very ugly history. Um, well, the delegates in 1972 said, we think public education is incredibly important and we have to protect its funding from being diverted to other things like private religious schools. If you want to go, that's your choice and that's fine, but you won't get public money to do it. And a Catholic priest stood up on the, on the floor of the, of the Constitutional Convention and he said, um, I think this is a good idea. And they rejected all that history of anti-Catholic bigotry. They said, no, this is about public schools and it's about religious freedom, about insulating religion from state influence. And that worked for Montana for a long time. Well, along came this tax credit program. And when the legislature passed it, um, the Department of Revenue was supposed to implement it. And they said, well, we have this constitutional provision that says you can't send the money to private religious schools. And um, so they wrote a rule that basically said you can, give the, you, can give this you can do this tax credit, but you can't give it to religious schools. Well, an out-of-state group from Virginia called the Institute for Justice um, found some plaintiffs in Montana and sued and said that discriminates against religious people only because they're religious, uh, setting aside this history of, of um, protecting public schools. Well, that, that case uh, had various iterations and, and worked its way through the court system, and eventually it got to the U.S. Supreme Court. And by the time it got to the U.S. Supreme Court, the Institute, this Virginia-based advocacy conservative group, was pushing a much more aggressive line. They said that Montana isn't allowed in its constitution to have this provision that says public money, public schools, no private religious schools. And that's what the, that's what the debate was about uh, at the U.S. Supreme Court. And I, I represented the state, and we argued in our, in our briefs and in the argument, we said um, the history is very clear on what Montana was doing here. It wasn't about anti-Catholic bigotry. Uh, Montana, you know, it's hard to imagine Montana could have done better at rejecting that history and instead saying we embrace public education as a core tenet of our values and our constitution and we're going to protect it in this way among others. Um, you know, one of the, I, I mentioned this a bit before, it was incredibly disappointing to see that Congressman Gianforte, who wants to be your governor, and Senator Daines, who wants to keep his job as your senator, wrote a brief in against the state and they said that we ought to erase this protection in Montana's constitution. And they didn't stop there. They went a step farther. They called it bigoted. They called the people who wrote our 1972 Constitution bigots. Now, when I went to the argument, I sat by two of those delegates, Maynan Ellingson, who at the time was Delegate Robinson, one of the youngest delegates, and Gene Harbaugh, another delegate. And I watched Steve Daines about 15, 20 feet ahead of me, happy as a clam, happy to be there, eagerly talking to Betsy DeVos, a, a champion of school privatization in our country, and it, it, it really had an effect on me and how this, and, I, and I, it was hard for me to tell whether it was all just political and just trying to get an edge on the issue of the day or if, if they really thought that about our Constitution. And if they really thought that about our Constitution, why are they trying to serve our state in the way they are? And should someone else step That's up and do that? That's a good question. Yeah. So we'll see what the court does. I think this will be one of those decisions that comes out in June. 
Um, it's a big case. It has a lot of effects around the country, and a lot of it will depend not just on what the court rules, but on how they rule and, and how broadly or narrowly either side is successful. So we'll see what happens in that. But it, it's one of the honors of my professional career to help defend public education in Montana and defend religious freedom. Um, I am a religious person. I grew up in a Lutheran church. My mother was just retired as a Lutheran bishop in Montana. Um, I am a religious person. Um, what was interesting is after this case happened, some conservatives in our state wrote some op-eds against me, attacking me, saying that I, I favored Jim Crow for Christians. And I thought that would surprise my mother, <laughs> who was a minister in the Christian <laughs> church. But um, it just goes to show how polarized uh, things have gotten. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also, how much is at stake in this case? Yeah, I think it's a very good example of being a state attorney general also can put you in the national picture, very yes, much so. Yes. In this particular case, absolutely yeah. in the center of it. Uh, and this happens to state attorney generals from time to time. Yeah, It is not a totally neutral, off in the corner, nobody knows what you're doing kind of thing. It's, right. It can very often become a national issue, right. things you work on. Um, I, we keep trying to stress people that uh, state offices, statewide offices, have real consequences. And sometimes in the pocketbook, sometimes in, I, I, in this case, fundamental constitutional issues. Right, right. And, 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 and the way we're talking about them is, is, is obviously very philosophical and lofty and academic. Um, but it also matters down the street at your local school. Right, because if if this protection isn't there, um, it's hard to imagine limits on what a legislature might do exactly. to change the school funding formula. And and I I, I have to remember that as a candidate as well that, that, that there are that these are value statements where we're talking right now. But it's also you know I, I have a ten month old daughter who will go to public school in Helena. Um, it's important to me for her future and her success that we protect our public education system. And that's that's as local as it gets. Right. Yes, and it also takes an awareness that there are people who don't want us to have a public education system. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that's been a part of our history, of course, from the very beginning. But uh, so, again, the, the moral of the story here is that the state attorney general has a role mm -hmm. in a lot of different things, sometimes local, sometimes national. Um, any other priorities that you'd like to highlight or the things that you would be most interested in working on if you were attorney general? Well, I, I really think I really think that there is an important role the attorney general can play when it comes to health and health access. Um, this is an issue, I mean, you're going to hear this from every person running for office in, in our state about, about the absurd vagaries and ambiguities in how much health care costs and how hard it is for some people to access health care. Um, I really think there's a role for the attorney general to play in this space. And I'll give you a couple examples. Um, the attorneys general in some states, not Montana, automatically review increases in drug prices over, you know, 50% increase a year, for example, will trigger a review to see whether that's supportable or unconscionable. That's something we could do here. Um, in other states, the attorney general has a health care section of ded dedicated, devoted attorneys who focus on issues like shady billing practices by insurers or by providers, um, shady billing practices by pharmaceutical corporations. That's something we could do here, but we don't. Um, I also think that it's really important that you know, w when you announce a focus like this and you, and you really engage on an issue like this where there is so much pressure on the other side to just sort of toe the corporate line, that you can back it up. 
Uh, one of the things I'm really proud of in this campaign is I am the only candidate running for attorney general that's taken a pledge not to take any money from corporate PACs, and I haven't. And as of right now, I'm the only candidate who hasn't received it. Every other candidate's received money from corporate PACs or employee PACs of corporations, which in my mind is essentially the same thing. Um, I won't take a dime from Big Pharma, and that's why people will know that if I elected attorney general, I will look out for them and not a big corporate donor. Um, I, I think that's, and I think that, you know, you mentioned this quote about, that I put on our website about the attorney general has a role for carving out protections for individual choice and individual freedom in our daily lives. I think healthcare is sort of the perfect issue that illustrates that. It's something we all have to do. It's something where economic powers beyond our control make choices for us. And where on the books we have protections, but they don't always work. Well, in that kind of situation, you need an advocate. In that kind of situation, that's where the attorney general can really come to bear and make a difference in your life. Or not. If you have a passive attorney general who just administers the agency, flies around the country going to conferences, things like that, which is a legitimate way to be attorney general, not what interests me, um, but you're not going to get those protections then. You're not going to get your money's worth out of this job. I mean, this, this, this job is your lawyer. And this lawyer is loyal only to you. And you ought to get something out of that. And in a way, that makes it a unique position because you're not being paid to do one particular thing other than guard the people. Right. Yeah. Right. I, I notice in, sometimes you work on issues that are, mostly I said, not necessarily pocketbook issues, at least they don't seem like it. Net neutrality is yeah. the one I'm thinking of. You worked on a, a governor's commission or a, a governor's report on that? Uh, uh, executive order. When we, and yeah, I was I was really proud of that. Um, and for, for your listeners that don't don't know, I mean, I, they probably all know what net neutrality is. But net neutrality is basically this idea that um, for as long as as you have ever ever had access to the internet through a computer or through a cell phone, there's been kind of a basic deal. And the deal is this: you pay a price to get the service, and you get access to everything on the internet, same speed, same price. No one can slow you down based on where you're going. Okay. Well, the Trump administration in 2017 thought it'd be a really good idea to put a profit motive between you and that information you used to be able to access. So that, for example, Hulu could cut a backroom deal with your internet provider to slow down Netflix unless you paid them more money. Or Amazon could say, uh, we're going to block all the local bookstores in your town and make sure that if you Google Books, uh, you're only going to see Amazon results, or it'll be slow at those local stores. And if you think about it for a second, changing that basic deal about you pay to get in the door, you get access to everything, completely rewrites how the Internet works, completely rewrites this information economy. And it's bad for business. I mean, not to mention people like people like us. It's terrible for business, too. And it really, it amounts just to a giveaway to these big, rich telecom companies that already you know, are doing just fine. They're making a lot of money. And when this happened, um, a lot of states immediately sued the federal government and said, this is wrong. We shouldn't do this. Montana, unfortunately, was not one of those states. And your attorney general, who again is loyal only to you, did not join that litigation, sat it out. So in the governor's office, we sat down and thought, is there something we can do as a state to, to respond to this? And we came up with the idea, well, the, the state itself, like the state government, is a pretty big purchaser of internet services. And maybe, just maybe, we could pass a rule for us that said, if you want to sell internet to us, the state, you've got to give us net neutrality and 
you, you got to give everyone else in Montana you serve net neutrality too. And we did business with the, you know, all the local providers and the big providers too, Charter, Verizon, AT&T, all did business with the state. So we, we put out this rule in an executive order, and we were the first state in the country to do anything in response. And what was really, I mean, it was really exciting to do it here. What was even more exciting is we created a template and the template just, it was our executive order. And then it said, uh, instead of Montana, we had parentheses, insert name of your jurisdiction, and, and did that throughout. And we put it out there. And the very next day, the state of New York did the same thing using our order. And the next day, New Jersey did it. And then Rhode Island did it. And then a Republican governor in Vermont did it. And now dozens of states around the country have either executive orders or legislation modeled off of something that we did here in Montana. And, you know, it's, it's been, you know, almost two years now since we did that. And I'm happy to report that all those big telecom companies that lobbied the federal government to make this change, they all signed up for the order. They all said, we can live by the same rules that we lived by before the Trump giveaway. And that meant a lot to us. I mean, that really meant a lot. And, 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 and not just these big companies that are rich and can afford it, but also the small local providers trying to break into the business. Right. And that, that was really cool. Yeah. That was really cool. Yeah, and again, it's another example that the state attorney general can play a, a significant role. Right, in, right. In, in, not only in the state, but nationally. Right, you know? right. Um, speaking of national, we, we usually get around to the point where we, we talk to the state-level office holders because while you're obviously focused on Montana, uh-huh. you also have a responsibility to keep an eye on what's going on at the national level. Yeah. Um, so we do have a, a question which I'm going to have to look it up again. But <laughs> the, the reason we ask this is because it's not only in the news, it's not only something that I think all of us should think about, but it, as of today and tomorrow, it is the, the crux of what's going on mm-hmm. in, in our world of politics. And right, it's, it's at the heart of the impeachment yeah. trial. But I think it like it's probably a good question to ask any candidate mm-hmm. running for any office um, in this day and age. So, do you believe it's appropriate for the President of the United States to ask a foreign leader to investigate a political rival? Yes or no? No. Yeah. <laughs> and decidedly no. One, we should talk about this. One, one, um, one thing I want to mention is Montana has also been a leader on this front as well, and not many people know this story. Um, everyone knows the story of how in 2016... There's no question that there was election interference uh, in, our, in our country by right. foreign powers trying to influence our, our vote and, and make our politics more divisive. Um, what people don't know is that there wasn't much work done afterwards by states or the federal government to make sure it didn't happen again. And Montana was the first state in the country to pass a statewide ban on foreign influence in elections following the 2016 issue. And I'm really proud to have been the person in the governor's office who, who took pen to paper and wrote our foreign money ban in Montana. And, and you know, this isn't Montana sort of um, miniaturizing a national issue. I mean, the, there are large foreign business interests in Montana. Right, yeah. Um, it, it's not an abstract issue. So uh, I was really proud to write that bill, um, to help shepherd that bill through the le- – I mean, I'm not a legislator. I can't vote. Um, I was happy to help shepherd that bill and work with the sponsors um, to make sure that Montana had a state protection. And, and I think, 
you know, there are a lot of frustrations in our federal system of, of states versus a federal government. But this is, I think, Montana lately has done a really good job of raising its hand and saying the federal government may not be doing its job, um, but we're going to do something here. Net neutrality example a too. Questions, really, yeah. which is the role that the state attorney general can play in legislation that fills in gaps that we we should be covering and are not. Yeah. Even if it's coming from the national level. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Um, any other issues or points that you want to make? I know you've been involved in a lot of a lot of different issues, but. Um, um, well, one one other case I, wa I want to highlight that really is the case that, that got me into this race um, deals with the issue of open spaces in Montana and our, and our public lands. And I know every politician likes to talk about public lands. Um, I've actually gone to court and fought for them when they were under attack, and, and that meant a lot to and me. And you mentioned that the, the attorney general is on the land board. So the attorney general, it, yeah, it is a land board member. Mm -hmm. um, th this case, so... If you go hunting or fishing in Montana, you're going to buy a conservation license, right? And it's 30 bucks or so. The conservation license, that money goes to a program called Habitat Montana. And Habitat Montana has been around for about 32 years, right. 33 years. And Habitat Montana does this. If you're a farmer or a rancher and you're on your land and you don't want to turn it into condos for Matt Rosendale, you don't want to subdivide it, sell it to some out-of-state billionaire, you can go work with Habitat Montana. And what, they're, what they'll do is they'll give you some money, and in exchange, you will let the public onto your land to hunt, fish, and recreate, and you'll also promote habitat goals, conservation goals. Now, this was one of the few programs that broke through this kind of age-old fight in the West between landowners and people who recreate outside. Right? It was, it was this shining, contrarian example of how that could actually work. Well, fast forward to 2016, you have this election where all the land board seats except for the governor get flipped over and people like Matt Rosendale and Corey Stapleton get on the land board. And all of a sudden the land board gets really political. And all of a sudden these projects, which historically had gone through the land board for final approval, were starting to get turned down. And families who had invested years, you know, two, three years, thousands of dollars to try to make this work, to try to essentially just do the right thing for the public and for their family, um, we're getting these deals pulled out from under them at the finish line. So the governor asked me to go look and see, you know, why do we, why do we ask the land board? Why, why do they weigh in on this? The land board's supposed to manage uh, trust lands for public schools. They don't manage conservation issues. Well, we looked at it. turns out the land board wasn't supposed to be looking at these at all. And we decided that we could just help these families out, and, and the Fish and Wildlife Commission was the right authority to basically finish these projects. And, that's, and we said, all right, that's, that's what the law requires. That's the way we're going to go. Well, the attorney general decided to weigh in. A Republican legislator named Scott Sales out of Bozeman said, um, I don't like what this bullock is doing, so why don't you weigh in and stop it? And the attorney general wrote an opinion that essentially would have sent this program back to the land board that was wrong on the law and that locked this program up. And when he did that, there were 13 families in the pipeline who were doing the right thing and had been told every step of the way, you follow the rules, get it right, this will work out for you. So when that happened, the governor asked me to go to court and to fight for these families and to say, make the law mean what it says. And we took that case up to the Supreme Court of our state. And I remember walking up there to the podium and you know, you're looking at the justices, obviously, because you've got to look at them. But I looked back for a moment and saw all these families in the back and all these sportsmen in the back. 
and thought about how much this meant to them in their planning. And it really raised, raised the stakes a little bit, too, for me. Um, happy that after we argued that case, after I argued that case, uh, we won six to one in the Supreme Court, and we protected that program. And what was most special to me is that after we won and got these, these 13 families through the process, 200,000 new acres of conservation easements showed up the next year. People saying, you know what, I want to do this too. I want to open my land up to the public. Oh, that's great. What, what made me think about this, and, and part of what makes this so poignant to me, is when you leave Montana. You know, I, went, I went and visited um, my uh, in-laws in Kentucky over Thanksgiving. Kentucky, I was trying to go for a run and looking at the Google map on my phone. Everything is owned. Everything is spoken for and divided up. And I was thinking about back in my office in Helena. When I look out the window, I see these, this rolling landscape of mountains of open space. And that's ours. We all own that together. And I thought, you know, that really makes the place we live in special. And the part of the Montana code book where this law lives, the section title is actually called Open Spaces. And I thought, I think that is so powerful in, in just in sort of a mundane legal way reflecting the values protected by this law. And um, I think that anyone who is paying attention to what my colleagues on the Republican side are proposing if they win in 2020 um, should be worried about those open spaces in their future in our state, worried about their quality and worried about your access to them. And I'm proud to have been on the front lines of that fight, making sure, making sure that they are ours and remain ours. Open right. spaces and, under the big sky. Yeah, and, and, and you mentioned um, the Corey Stapleton and, and Rosendale mm -hmm. that were on the land board. Yeah. That wasn't uh, the current attorney general, Tim Fox. Tim, Tim Fox. He's on the land board, yeah. too. So was he in favor of that? Well, to give Tim Fox credit, he voted the right way. He said and it, came, it came to head with this particular family with a ranch out near Weibo. And Stapleton said, effectively, anything with conservation I'm against. You know, at least he's honest. Uh, Rosendale went around and around and around and said, well, I am, I've been a real estate developer in Maryland. I don't know if I trust the professional appraiser's opinion of the value of uh, this land in eastern Montana, and he just couldn't make a decision. And because he couldn't make a decision, Elsie Arnson couldn't make a decision. And, um, and it just dragged this process mm -hmm. out. And, 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 was, and it, we, you know, you've ever bought a house. There are deadlines involved in real estate deals, and it, just, it was going to string this family out and kill the deal and, and have them out a bunch of money. And um, Fox, to his credit, voted the right way. Um, but when it came to the Republicans asking him to weigh in, and try to lock this program up, he didn't do the right thing. And he wrote an opinion that, that our Supreme Court said was wrong. Wow. I suspect that this situation also spills over into climate issues. Yeah. The climate emergency, I, I don't know the specifics that you may, have, may or may not have worked on, but I would guess these same attitudes and these same approaches are applicable there. Um, have you seen any of that? Or well, I assume that the Attorney General would get involved in some of these issues, which is water conservation and, and yeah. what to do about how to react to climate change, perhaps um, energy uses, that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. And, and one tool that Montana has that some other states don't have is, we, is back to our Constitution. We have this provision that says everyone in this room and everyone you're going to see on the street today has a right to a clean and healthy environment. And that's a really powerful tool when it comes to legal proceedings and making sure that, for example, um, uh, you know, I'll give a very specific example. The federal government can't discriminate against clean energy in energy markets, right? Montana has a story to tell there, right? And, and you could name the issue where 
federal inaction might be a problem for addressing the climate emergency or other states might be interfering with things that we're doing. We have this story to tell that comes from this foundational document that memorializes our values. And the value of the, the earth we all live on and the places we share is, is paramount in our Constitution. And an attorney general faithful to that Constitution will prioritize that. Um, well, with that, we, we have covered a lot of issues, and I really appreciate you dealing with actual cases, things that you personally have worked on or that you know about. Um, I think it brings home again the idea that the state attorney general can and probably should be involved in a lot of issues. And uh, it is both in, both in reacting to things that happen and in, let's say, failing holes and working on things that need to be done just because it's the right thing to do. I appreciate the time you've taken. I know you're busy and I've got a lot of other places to go, but happy you could take the time to talk to us. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, thank and you. I'm really appreciative of the time. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Well, we certainly thank Rafe Grable for coming in and I think presenting some very important perspectives. Let's, let's start with his focus on the Constitution of Montana. Right, that was, uh, that was very interesting. And I, I think a lot of people are unaware that we have a distinctive Constitution, which is relatively, it was modernized, and that's the word to use, in 1972, so he and he's very familiar with that. It's obvious that that is a fundament to his legal thinking, right? Um, from there, he, he talked about issues. I think he also really exemplifies the role that the state attorney general can play in larger political and philosophical issues. Uh, dark money was one of the issues. I think he, he mentioned quite a lot. And the other was the Espinosa versus uh, Montana Department of Revenue, that case in front of the Supreme Court, sort of as we speak. Right, uh, right. Which you know we have actually our our one of our senators and um, our current House member both thought was uh, the Montana law was bigoted that the 1972 Montana Constitution was bigoted against um, the religion. So. Yeah, and that's the line of argument that they've recently adopted. Uh, I want to recall for everybody who's listening that the rewritten Montana state constitution was a bipartisan effort, and many of the elements of it were written by Republicans. And right, it was. It's, uh, it was... it's kind of <laughs> interesting to note that in the modern times, our our times, they're trying to repudiate a lot of it. Right. I mean, the, the 1972 Montana Constitution was written by 100 delegates that were chosen from throughout the states, <laughs> state that represent all different kinds of people. And it was, um, you know, a, a real forward-thinking document that addressed states' rights, human rights. Um, it was, you know, well, and well-received at the time. A number of things that are not in the federal Constitution, probably well, for obvious reasons, but to have them in the state constitution gives them a lot more foundation to deal with here. Right, yeah. And it's, it's one of the reasons why our state attorney general is such an important office. And again, we stress that, that these statewide offices are really important. They deserve your attention to right. who's running. And it's really hard to imagine now that you would be able to have, you know, the kind of bipartisanship that it took to write that 
1972 Constitution, um, where it's just hard to imagine that you could get that kind of cooperation, especially the GOP has decided to be the anti-environmental party, where a lot of that 1972 Constitution enshrined environmental protections in the Montana state law. So with that note, I think we'll, we'll close off this session. I'm glad that you had a chance to listen to Rafe Grable, and who's running for the state attorney general position. Uh, this has been uh, an interesting episode. I'm Nelson King, along with Dixie Hart, coming to you from Soundcaller Studios in downtown Livingston, Montana. And I thank you very much for listening. <music>